Good morning, Lighthouse. My name is Bill, and I have the pleasure of bringing you the scripture reading today. If you want to follow along, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4, 1 through 6. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out of your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Thank you, Bill. Let's pray, church. Lord, we realize that uh, in looking at the book of Nehemiah, that it's a historical book for sure, and, but it's greater than that. It's a Holy Spirit breathed out book that has deep and abiding lessons for us, where it's not only about the building of a physical wall in Jerusalem, it's about the building of our lives, for we are living stones, your word says, being built up as a spiritual house of praise. And so, Lord, there is probably in most of our lives some measure of rubble and debris and uh, difficulty and all that kind of stuff that perhaps is needing some attention. So I pray, God, that as we continue through this book that we would... uh, be open to the work of your spirit in us as you would rebuild those broken places in us. And, um, and so, Lord, speak now through these pages and, and, or these verses, and Lord, especially for those who are experiencing opposition in their lives, and they've, they've stepped into their calling and, and they're serving you and they're experiencing difficulty and opposition. Lord, I pray that you would make some sense of that this morning and bring some encouragement and help us to get rid of any kind of a spirit of fear that we might have in our lives, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we dive in, Uh, We are launching seven discipleship groups here within the next couple of weeks. And what these discipleship groups are, uh, are you can still join, is that it's it's basically a one-year commitment, and the groups will be seven people max, and the group will meet about 34 times during the year. And you'll study the Bible, you'll have discussion over the passages that you're studying, you'll pray for one another, you'll, you know, get to know one another, build each other up, that kind of thing. And each group will have a leader who's mature in the Lord, who's gone through some training. And so it's a great opportunity to get into, first of all, to grow in the Lord, to just want to go deeper in your relationship with God. But secondly, to develop relationships within your church. 
which is so important to a, to a, a healthy life in the Lord. It is so vital. So you can sign up. You can sign up on the website or on the app. Get your name in there. Get plugged into a discipleship group. One-year commitment. Okay, here we go. Nehemiah. Our chapter now, man, the heat gets turned up. We have God's people. They're, they're coming off of the sidelines now, and they're jumping into the game. And the building of the wall, uh, as you know, I'm not going to rehearse all the details. We'll rehearse that again later on down the line. But the building of the wall begins. That was in rubble. They're now starting to build it back, which makes the enemies of God super mad. They are super fired up and angry that now they're actually rebuilding the wall, the activity. So I'm going to bring out maybe four or five things from our our six verses here this morning. So the first one is, listen, action will always bring opposition in your life. This is just absolutely true. When you decide that you are going to activate for the Lord and start to serve the Lord, it's going to bring opposition. So verse one, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So when did he get super angry, super upset? Is when they started building. It's when they got active. It's when they got off the sidelines and into the game. That's when the attacks started. Listen, here's here's the big idea. If you don't want Satan coming against you and people talking trash about you, here's what you can do. Do nothing significant, say nothing significant in your life. There's the recipe. Now you will live a sad, pathetic life. Stay on the sidelines, never get in the game. As long as God's people were content to live in a, a, you know, just kind of a sad, pathetic condition amongst the ruins and the rubble of Jerusalem, the enemy just left them alone. They're no threat. But as soon as they began to serve the Lord and care about God's glory, the enemy was enraged and activated. Therefore, young Christian, old Christian, if you are wise... You will interpret opposition in your life as evidence that you are on the right track. So opposition is evidence that you are heading in the right direction and God is getting ready to bless you. The closer you get to the target, the more the bullets are going to fly. So here's what you need to know. Though we may find ourselves in conflict with or attacked and slandered by people, by humans, might be within our marriage even, might be in, in the workplace, it might, wherever. It, people, yet the real battle is in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm. A lot of you guys know this verse. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Okay, that's where the wrestling match is. That's where the fight is. I read um, recently that in the, the Persian Gulf War in 1991, 
uh, the people living along the Turkish border, they were super worried about uh, a chemical attack. And so, you know, you can't see chemicals, right? So they, they uh, wrapped plastic over their windows, sealed their door cracks, all that kind of stuff. And some people along the border, they, at nighttime, they would tie up a chicken outside of their front door and before going to bed at night. And in the morning, they would look out to win the window to see if the chicken was still alive. And if the chicken was still alive, then they knew it was, it was okay to be able to go outside. So listen, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground. It's not a playground, it's a battleground. And that we face an invisible enemy who wants to rob our joy and destroy our families and sideline us when it comes to serving God. And so all around us, I mean, right now at this very moment, there is an unseen world of spiritual reality. And it's a world that's filled with activity. We, we would freak out if we could see it right now. And it's there. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of creatures are in conflict with each other in what Paul can only describe as a war. It's warfare. And it's happening in the unseen realm as we speak. If we were to put spiritual chickens outside of our spiritual door, those spiritual chickens would be spiritual McNuggets. <laughs> the spiritual realm is a realm that's inhabited by angels and demons, by Satan and God, by heaven and hell. It's more real, it's more substantial than the physical world that we live in currently. The spiritual realm is eternal. It's never ending. This world as it's constituted now is coming to an end. When we die, we will go to one of two places in the spiritual realm, in the eternal realm. So until that day, the invisible world, the spiritual realm, will have a dramatic impact upon the physical one. So what we see unfolding before us day to day on the scene of the world, and of course it, it's more in our attention now because of you know, social media, the, last, the development of that the last 20 years, what's happening around the planet comes to us you know, almost instantaneously. And so, so what we're seeing right now happening from the brutal slaughter of Israeli civilians and, and the shameful vilifying of Israel that we're seeing in our cities and on our campuses, like people blaming Israel to, to the wholesale denial of basic realities and truths about the nature of a human being that, that's being foisted upon us. It's, it's first originated in the realm of the unseen. It's cosmic powers that are promoting this kind of thing. A struggle of good and evil is taking place. It's of cosmic proportions. Satan hates all image bearers of God. Jesus describes Satan's goal quite succinctly in John 10.10, 10, the thief, meaning Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. If you want to know what Satan is about, there you have it. 
Steal from you, kill you, destroy you if he can. And then what's his method? Jesus said in John 8, 44, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and he is the father of lies. That's what Satan does. He lies. I was listening to a, a speech uh, given by a high-ranking British officer concerning the Israeli Defense Fund. This isn't going to be a message all about the Middle East this morning, but I think it's appropriate just to illustrate that this British officer was recounting the interactions that he had with the Israeli Defense Force and he said to this group of politicians, this big room, he said, there's never been a military that's gone to such great lengths to avoid civilian casualties. There has never been a more moral military than the IDF, he said, ever. He's never seen such care taken. This is the opinion of not only this, high-ranking officer in the British Army, but of all clear-thinking, fair-minded people. Golda Meir, the former Prime Minister of Israel, she famously said back in the early 70s, quote, we can forgive you for killing our sons, but we will never forgive you for making us kill yours. You know, I was reading yesterday that the Hamas terrorists who committed all the, the sick, vile acts of violence on October 7th, they were, they were all hopped up on a, on a drug called Optagon. And Optagon, it's an amphetamine, but it, it, it enables a person to stay in a, in a hyper alert condition over long periods of time and it also enabled the terrorists to commit these atrocities, the rapes, the beheadings, all of it, with a perverse sense of euphoria and glee. So this was fun for them. Where does that originate? The idea of a, of a slaughtering and a desecrating of a human body of a human life. The same demonic principalities that stirred up hatred against the Jews in Nehemiah's day are stirring up hatred against the Jews today. Are we saying that Israel is perfect? No, not by any means. But they are, they have a moral compass, which is obvious. Why does Satan hate Israel? and hate the Jews? Why have they been the subject of persecution going back millennia? Well, just to, to briefly recount, Israel is the land that God promised to a guy from Iraq called Abram. And God made an unconditional covenant with this guy, Abram, telling him, go to a land that he promised him and, and from Abram, who became Abraham, would come a, a new nation, would be born through him. From this new nation, this, this ethnos, this new people, uh, living in this promised land, promised by God, would come the savior of the world. And this savior would die for our sins and defeat death by rising from it. This Jew, 
Jesus Christ, who lived and died in the promised land, the land that was given to Abram and his descendants, this Jew Jesus ascended back into heaven and he has promised to return back to the earth. Where is he gonna return to? Israel, more specifically, Jerusalem. That's where he's gonna come back to. And he's gonna rescue his brethren according to the flesh, the Jewish people, whom Romans 11 says they will all be saved in that day. Not by you know, some secondary means of salvation, but they will put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, just like you have at some point in your life, many of you, most of you probably. Is it any wonder that the world is focused upon Israel? Of course not. It's the navel of the world. It's the, the center of the fight between good and evil. So Satan means adversary. Satan opposes the plans of God. So when you decide that you're gonna give your life to the Lord and serve him and live for his glory, you should expect opposition. It's going to happen. It'll show up in your marriage. It'll show up in the workplace. Satan desires to dissuade you from this choice that you've made, desires to destroy you if he can, but God will use Satan's opposition to develop you and to bless you. And so this is how we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. Satan wants to destroy you. God says, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna bless my people. I'm gonna take Satan's activity and I'm gonna make it cause my daughter, my son to grow strong in me. They're gonna see how powerful I am. They're gonna see how for them I am, how able I am to bless them, to bring them through, how able they are to trust me. Well, secondly, number two, the target of the opposition, yes, it's the people of God, but, it, but the enemy, in this case, Sanballat, picturesque of our adversary, Satan, focuses in on the word of God and the worship of God. Now, where is that, you say? Well, look carefully, verse two. And he said, this is Sanballat, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, next week we'll, we'll kind of do a little bit of work on history of the Samaritans at complete odds with the Jews. They hated each other. Samaritans were a half-breed people. We won't go into that now. We'll do that next week. But Sanballat, in front of the whole army, says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish and the burned ones at that? So Sanballat is mocking God's people. But notice that he says to his army, what do these pathetic weaklings think that they're gonna do? Do they think they're gonna get the sacrifices going again? Do they think they're gonna open church back up for worship, essentially is what they're saying? Listen, what Nehemiah was doing in rebuilding the protective wall around Jerusalem was in effect restoring the worship of God and the preaching of the word of God so that the people of God would be built up for the glory of God. Flash forward uh, to chapter eight of Nehemiah and you'll see, spoiler alert, uh, revival breaks out. 
And they build a platform for Ezra, the priest, to get up and he begins to teach the word of God. And as he's teaching the word of God, the people are being convicted by the word of God and they're repenting of their sin and joy begins to break out and there's an incredible revival that takes place. That's what Nehemiah was building for. That's what we build. Hey, it's not so that we get a wall. The wall is serving the greater purpose. Joy was unleashed. The worship team began to write new songs. Families were strengthened. Priorities reconfigured. Values realigned. The word and worship are restored to their rightful place as central in the lives of the people of God. It's where it's always meant to be, is in the center. That's why we gather on the first day of the week, because God gets the first the best, the first fruits. So we gather Sunday morning. God, this whole week is yours. And we're showing you that because we're showing, we're here on the first day because God, you are first in our life. God, we tithe, we give you the first fruits of the increase because you are first in our lives. Satan will always wage war on the word and worship. His first attack Deception against humans in the garden. What did he say to Eve? He asked her a question. Has God really said? It was an attack upon God's word. Do you long for revival in your life? I'll tell you this, it's not gonna happen apart from gathering it with God's people to worship God and hearing the word of God preached faithfully. I was talking to a young man recently who, who said something in our conversation that just struck me as, man, that is so right on, the attitude. He said something to the effect of, you know, I, can't, I just can't miss church. I've, I've got to worship and I've got to be in the word. So, so he's not thinking of these things as optional, right? He's not going, well, I am taking Sunday off or I'm going to, you know, not be in the word today or whatever. He thought of them. He thought of, you know, gathering with God's people and worshiping the Lord and hearing his word preached into his life. He thought of these things like air and water and food, not optional. That is the kind of attitude that we ought to be developing in ourselves. God, we need you. God, we're desperate for you. God, we can't go on without you. I heard Billy Graham's, I use this illustration many times, but it struck me, especially as a young Christian, he would ask his audience a question. He would say, what happens when you separate a burning coal from the pile of burning coals? And you don't even have to finish the illustration, do you? We all know exactly what happens. Has the fire that once burned bright inside of you for God and his glory, has it diminished? Has it cooled off? 
The enemy of your soul will do whatever he can to keep you away from the gathering of the saints and the preaching of the word and the worship of Jesus. So, so listen, who do you think ultimately was behind the COVID lockdowns and the shutting down of churches? Call me a conspiracy theorist. You know, I used to be a conspiracy theorist, but then they all came true. Listen, humility and hunger for God, it's not like a wind that blows in our life. Oh, I'm feeling humble. It's not like that. It's something we develop, we nurture, we tend to in our lives. We, we adopt a posture of being needy before God. Like, I need you. Well, number three, man, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna probably end on this one because I feel like this is, this is important. So Satan will, will ridicule us and he will focus on our weaknesses. Okay, so again, verse two, Nehemiah 4.2, he said, Sam Bala did, in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they, sac you know, will they restore it for, the, like, these people aren't spiritual. Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of, of the rubbish, burned ones? Verse three, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. So picture the two guys, you know, speaking to the army. And he said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Like what, what they're building is gonna be so weak and not enduring and so they're mocking, they're making fun. Sanballat and his, his flunky right-hand man, Tobiah, they make fun of God's people in front of huge crowds and Nehemiah hears what's being said. Sanballat and Tobiah are trying to make God's people afraid, insecure, by pointing to their weaknesses and their inadequacies. If Satan can get you or me to focus on ourselves and on our lack and everything that we don't have and can't do and how we fail here and fail there, then listen, instead of focusing upon Jesus and his provision for us and his grace for us that is all sufficient for us, then he will win the day. Because if I'm moping around going, oh, I lack this, and I can't do that, and I'm not gifted for this, and I sin over here too much, and I struggle, and, and we just mope around focused upon ourselves instead of lifting our eyes to Jesus and being renewed and invigorated by him on a day-to-day -day basis, then we are going to be discouraged we are going to think, man, I am, I am strong B team or C team material for God's team. That's what I'm saying. Because I've got this problem, these struggles, and so on. God doesn't have a B team. He doesn't. And, and this kind of thinking, it's so prevalent in us, we give in to it so easily. There is no B team. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're on the eight, you're on the varsity. You, you, you have just as much access to the throne of God. Okay, who's the holiest person you can think of? Don't anybody say Greg Fett. <laughs> Let me tell you that. 
Not that there was any danger of that happening. But. So we might say, you know, some famous pastor or whatever. You have just the same amount of access that the most holy person in the world has right now. You are absolutely loved, absolutely complete in Jesus, who is absolutely accessible to you. And that's just true, whether you believe it or not, and that's where the rub is. A lot of you don't believe it. And faith, unbelief, that's the thief in our lives. That's what robs us. So if Satan can get you to buy in to your own voice tape recorder, which is what he seizes upon often, that you're a loser and you can't, and you got this problem, and I know you got this struggle, whatever, so that you're just not AT material, and he's gonna win the day. Ridicule and mocking, it's always been the enemy's tools of the trade. When David decided to get up off of the sidelines and enter the fight, Goliath mocked him mercilessly. When David went down, David, teenage shepherd boy, you know, the army of Israel, they're, they're sitting on the sidelines, right? And David decides, hey, that big dude can't be saying that stuff. So he takes his, sta his shepherd's staff and a sling and runs down into the valley of Elah there and starts running at Goliath. And Goliath looks at him. I'm going to read it to you, 1 Samuel 17, 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the name of his gods. Come over here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and to the wild. You know, come on, kid. Jesus was mocked by the soldiers at his trial. While he was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders mocked him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers mocked him there at the cross too. Even one of the criminals that was crucified next to him mocked him, saying, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and save us too while you're at it. And he said it in a mocking, jeering way. The the hall of faith people in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, Noah and Abraham and Samson and all of them. It says in, I think it's right around verse in the 30s, 36 or something like that, that they endured jeering. All such mocking and ridicule is intended to get us to cower in fear. And it can create what the Bible calls a spirit of fear, a spirit of fear. When we encounter a spirit of fear, and, and we will, you will, it's, it will happen. It can be discouraging and debilitating. Timothy was a guy, he was a pastor, and he dealt with a spirit of fear. How do we know? Because Paul wrote to him about it and talked to him about it. Famous passage, I'm gonna read it to you, 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Therefore, 
Be not ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. <clears throat> so Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Paul led Timothy to Jesus and discipled him. And Timothy was a young pastor at this point who had a lot of personal challenges in his life. Because of his relatively young age, <clears throat> he had people in his church disrespecting him. Paul coached Timothy, hey, don't let people look down upon you because you're young, but rather just set an example. Just walk the walk. And, and, and then they'll respect you, okay? You don't have to try and verbally get them to <laughs> respect you. Just live the life, man. Timothy had stomach problems. So Paul says, drink some wine for your stomach, Timothy. And Timothy had a problem with fear. The Greek word under, underneath fear, it, it, it's the idea of timidity and cowardice. So probably our, we have a more modern word, we would say insecure, insecurities. Insecurity, simply put, is it's uncertainty about ourselves and it's obsessing over, you know, what people think about us and that kind of thing. And most people struggle with that to, to one degree or another. And so you're not, you're not alone in that, in that struggle. But there's a, there's a proverb, uh, I think it's Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a, a snare. It's a trap. My brother Jeff used to trap. Living in northern Minnesota, our dad had 40 acres of, of woods. And he would go out there and lay a trap line. And he would try and trap mink and muskrat, whatever, that kind of thing. And so he would lay the trap line, then go to each, each of the, the jaws of the trap, open them up and set them. And then when that animal would come in and, and hit the trigger, because there would be some bait in there, hit the trigger, and those jaws, boom, they would slam shut. And that animal was trapped now, ensnared. Okay, that's what the fear of man does to us. It locks us up so that we can't move. We're inhibited now. We're, we're, we should be able, to be able to speak more freely and more clearly, and now I'm, I'm stuck because if I say that, then they're, they're going to think this way of me. So it's a snare. I've noticed that as I've gotten older, I've gotten freer. <laughs> and so I'm just wanting to point out there's, there's some benefits to getting older. And uh, I, was, I was listening to this interview happening with a 96-year-old man. And, um, and he was saying there's blessings being old. And, and the interviewer said, so, so what are, what's good about getting old in your, in your life? And, and the guy says, well, my, my hearing is about gone. And I have to turn up my hearing aids all the way up just to hear what you say and I can't see anymore and everything's a blur and my joints are shot and my reaction times are slow and you know he goes on and on the interview says well, well so, so what's good about getting old and the guy says well praise God I still have my driver's license <laughs> getting old can 
kind of help you get free of some of those fears of what people may think, but you can overcome that stuff when you're young. You absolutely can. Paul tells Timothy, God didn't give you that timidity and that fear. That's not from him. Listen, Christian, that, that cowardice thing, that, you know, that's not God in your life. And so Paul tells Timothy, and, and to all of us who are called to reach the world with the message of a crucified and risen Savior, God gives us a spirit, not of fear, not of cowardice and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control, or some translations will say a sound mind. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gift that was given you through the laying on of my hand. So in other words, Timothy uh, was prayed for by Paul and was subsequently filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And this is the key to getting rid of a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear can come on you. It certainly can, and it probably will at some point. And so to get rid of the spirit, the key to getting rid of the spirit of fear is to fan the gift that God gives us, the Holy Spirit, into flame. To be a spirit-filled Christian, as our common vernacular would say it. You know, many different religions, they have anointing rituals. Um, in, you know, uh, some sort of oil is usually used in these rituals in, in the animistic religions and East Africa, for instance, they will pour the oils of the bodies of, of various animals upon a person so that uh, this person, you know, the, the theory is, the belief is that they'll take on the characteristics of the animal. So if you, you, you know, slay a lion and you get the oils of a lion, you pour that, you anoint the person with the oil from the lion's body, that that person will now become courageous and ferocious and so on. So they're anointed with that lion's oil. Well, the Bible speaks of an anointing that enables a person to take on the characteristics of another as well. 2 Corinthians 1.21, it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. There it is, the pouring of oil. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. No spirit of fear and cowardice and timidity. We take on the characteristics, the character of the Lord himself because we have the spirit of the Lord himself indwelling us and anointing us. Paul gives Timothy, and we'll end here, three clear identifying marks that he's operating in this anointing. Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So hey, we'll be accused <laughs> if you follow Jesus and wanna serve the Lord. You'll be accused of being hateful and phobic and patriarchal colonizing oppressors and whatever the thing is these days. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
God's spirit enables you to not only put aside the timidity, the insecurity, the stuff that'll keep us sidelined, but he will also enable you to think rightly about reality, soberly. You are not, listen, Christian, you are not crazy for thinking that a Jewish guy who died on the cross 2,000 years ago is the answer to humanity's problem and to the world's problems. You're not crazy. You are sober-minded because it's absolutely true. So we think our doubts and our fears and, and our sins disqualify us from taking the gospel to our families and to our friends and to our neighbors and maybe even overseas to the mission field over there. And ironically, and oh, if you can receive this, somebody's gonna get super free, I believe, this morning, if you can receive this. Ironically, the very things we feel disqualify us are the very things that qualify us. What do you mean? 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Whoa, that is a verse that is so pregnant with truth. Did you hear that? So, so it's not about me and my ability, inability, my ups or my downs, my consistencies or inconsistencies or competency. It's what God calls me to do, and it comes then from God's resources for me to do. You see, the greatest obstacle to us getting off of the sidelines and into the game and reaching people for the sake of the gospel is fear, it's self-doubt, it's insecurity. But that very fear and self-doubt is proof of God's design. It's in our fear and our self-doubt that God shows his power most clearly. What did Paul say when he was struggling with the thorn in the flesh and he desperately wanted delivered from it? He was so sick of it. It was such a, a, a tormenting kind of a thing in his life. God, please heal me. No. God, please heal me. No. God, please heal me. No. My grace is sufficient, Paul, for my strength is made perfect. Where? In your weaknesses. in your weaknesses. Anybody got a pretty good load of weaknesses in their life? Anybody besides me? Where is God's strength made perfect? It's in those weaknesses. It's in our fears, our doubts, our frailties that God shows his power most clearly. Our weakness is put on display so that his strength is set against it. It's the power of God that is manifested through our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. That's the way it works. All right. We'll... Um, We'll continue next week.
But I just feel like God is, God is speaking to some people this morning and saying, listen, time to get off the sidelines. Time to get into the game. I've called you. I've gifted you. You may not think it's a big deal that you can't, you know, do this or you can't do that or maybe you can't, you know, whatever, preach or whatever. Listen, you are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. That's he, he's created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. And all God is saying to you this morning is just step forward into the destiny that I've created for you. That's all he's saying. Just take, take this step, get up off the bench, step into the game, and you can just trust me with the rest. Trust me with the rest. Bring your big bucket of weaknesses. It's all good. I don't need you to you know, be some super saint that's climbed the mountain of holiness where you got it all put together and you be good. You know, I, don't, I really don't even have any of those. I've only got humans like you. And it's the humans who just get honest, try not to be spiritual or whatever. They just trust me. They develop a humility in their lives, a neediness of me. They, you know, though they get mocked for being weak, they lean right into it and said, yep, you got it right. That's, that's, that's the glory. I'm going to glory, Paul said, in my weaknesses. I'm going to lean right into that. So you can mock me and jeer me all you want, devil, for me being a pathetic excuse for a Christian. Go for it. Have at it. Because my glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for me. Lord, thank you for the deep truths and lessons that, that come to us out of the pages of Nehemiah. And indeed, even as we open in prayer, just, just kind of bringing to our thinking that this is, this is more than the building of a physical wall around a physical city and, and all of that. This is, there's a greater story going on here. This is about the glory of God in the earth. And this is about the work of God in our own lives and in our own church and in our own community. And so, God, would you, just in this moment, as we get ready to make our way to the table, would you, um, Lord, just bring your people to, to the place where there's, there's, a, there's a decision, there's a, there's a God, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering to you right now. I've been, I've been on the sidelines. I've been maybe just loving comfort more than I've loved your glory. I've, I've sought pleasure and ease more than I've sought you. And, and I'm just not wanting to waste my life. I'm, I'm wanting to invest my life and live it out for you and be a part of the great adventure, fighting the good fight of fate. And so speak to your people right now, God. If God is speaking to you, Christian, 
Would you right now, right where you're seated, I'm, I'm gonna talk to those who aren't Christians here in, in just one second, but right where you are, would you, would you get with the Lord right now and just tell him, God, I am yours. God, I surrender. God, I'm getting off of the sideline. God, and then, Lord, you have the keys to my life. You have the steering wheel of my life. Lord, you, you lead. You take me where you want me to go. You show me to serve where you want me to serve. You go ahead and pray. And while you do that, listen, if you're not a Christian here, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I want to invite you to do that right now. Raise up your hand if that's you. And I'm going to, in a moment, just lead you in a prayer. And it doesn't matter, like, what religion you may have been or if you're religious at all or what kind of life you live none of that matters but God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sin upon the cross and to rise from death in order that he could reconcile you to God and this is the grand story of your life it absolutely is and that's why you're here this morning if that's you so raise up your hand God bless you ma'am there in the back anybody else Anybody else? All right. Anyone else before we pray? Thank you, Lord, for these hands. Thank you, God. All right, if you raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer. Repeat after me and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you that you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. Come into my life and wash away all my sin and all my guilt. I receive you now by faith as my Lord and as my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome those who prayed this morning.